Hey, I'm Akko. And I'm Marcy. And welcome to the Color Pages Book Club, a bi-weekly podcast that focuses on fiction, fantasy, and magical realism written by writers from colorful backgrounds. Yes, colorful backgrounds. Yes. And today we'll actually be interviewing Malcolm Hansen, the author of They Come in All Colors, which, as you all know, has been the book that we've been reading for the past couple of weeks. So Malcolm, hi, how are you doing? What's up? (laughs) Good. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Um, so we usually do this like kind of awkward thing where we'll like read people's bios before we like get started. But we figured like we could just like since you're here, we could just ask you right. <laughs> to just yeah, like tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, kind of get the listeners acquainted with who you are. Sure. Um, well, I'm a, a, a husband and father. I have uh, two young boys. I'm also a, uh, a high school dropout. I left high school early. I left high school in my junior year, junior year. and mm. after uh, two years of um, community college, worked my way into Stanford, where I graduated right. with a degree in philosophy. Um, mm. I'm also a, a traveler and uh, done a fair bit of traveling to, and working in uh, both Europe and South America. And uh, most recently, I completed my MFA at Columbia and uh, have been living here in New York with my wife and two sons for uh, almost 10 years now. Oh, wow. That's amazing. What what kind of work were you doing um, abroad? Uh, Well, a little bit of lots of stuff, actually. So in, in, uh, in Europe, I was in Sweden and I was doing some software work, internet related. And when I was in South America, I was really doing piecemeal uh, work. I was in Argentina and mm. I was teaching English. Oh, wow. Mm. And what made you want to switch your career and get an MFA and become a writer? Uh, well, it was, it was, it was a progressive uh, decision. You know, I, uh, when I graduated from Stanford, this is going back to around 95, I um, wanted to write and, uh, but I didn't have the courage to really to go mm. out on, you know, on that path. And uh, so I started working in software. I, I went to Oracle right after graduation and mm. I was in, in a small kind of research uh, oriented group um, doing stuff around computer science and linguistics. And um, I was a lexicographer. That was my title. And I did that for about four years. Um, to, and then I left Oracle. I went to a few other places. I was at Excite, pardon me, InfoSeq early on. And, mm. um, but was really unsatisfied. And so after about four or five years of that type of work and, and seeing what it felt like to make money and seeing what it felt like to be at least moderately successful in the software business and still not being mm. happy, that kind of bolstered my courage to try new paths. Ah. And mm. so I, I uh, decided to take a trip uh, south. So I've been uh, an avid motorcyclist uh, since my teenage days. Work! And, right! Yes. Like, Come on! That's cool. And I, got, I got a motorcycle. I, mean, I had a motorcycle. I got another motorcycle. And I sold all my stuff and I took a road trip from San Francisco to Ecuador. Overland. Holy. Oh my god. There's a movie like this. I, I think it's like the di- Motorcycle Diaries. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. His was coming north from Argentina. He didn't Yes, that, that's the Che Guevara story. Yeah, yes. yeah. I was wondering if that inspired you in any way or if I'm just basic and everyone knows the story. <laughs> <laughs> the movie hadn't come out yet. What, what inspired me was I, I love travel. I'd already ridden across country on motorcycle a couple of times by that oh, point. Okay. I wanted a new, a new adventure. And 
adventures have always been very helpful in kind of clearing my mind, helping me focus. And I, 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 I wanted to see if, if uh, an adventure wouldn't help me figure out the next path in, mm. in my, you know, professional life. How wow. long did that take? It took me six months just to get down to Cartagena, Colombia. Oh, and, mm. uh, and then, of course, by the time I got to Ecuador, I, I first arrived in Quito. A friend of mine actually from school was there. He was teaching in a, in a private school, teaching physics. And so I stayed with him mm. for a while. But uh, I would say to get to, to, get to uh, Ecuador was about, you know, g- about three quarters of a year. So I'd, I'd really, I would stop at places mm. and I would just kind of hang out for months at a time. Um, and by the time I got to Ecuador, I was pretty low on money. So I, I stopped and, um, and I started writing then. This is, is the most romantic, like, like story, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> oh my God. Like, I'm actually speechless. Like, did you, like, did you plan this all in advance? Like, did you know, like, okay, when I'm in this place, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to stay here, here, here. Or was it just like, no, it was planned. In fact, my, all of my friends, you know, from school thought I was absolutely crazy. <laughs> that I lost mm-hmm. my mind. Um, was they weren't sure what had kind of possessed me to do this thing. Um, I have just been, you know, I'm I'm willing to take chances and I'm willing to go on, you know, to to do things that, you know, that are a little different. And so I had a conviction that that things would work out. And uh, so, no, when I took that, I had read a couple of books on kind of travel through South America just to kind of give me a, a sense. And uh, and and most of them were, you know, be very cautious. And and of course, this is going back. So, so this is around the turn of the millennium. Now we're talking. Mm. And um, so there was a lot of stuff going on with rebel groups, with FARC and whatever through, um, you know, in Colombia and Venezuela uh, and actually in certain parts of northern Ecuador as well. And um, Mm -hmm. but I just, you know, I don't know. I I felt that um, it was a chance that I I wanted to take. And, And in a way, you could say that if, you know, uh, I just you know, things, if things were going to work for me, then they're going to work. And, and mm-hmm. so I, I felt, I feel okay taking certain risks and I felt that one was worth taking. In other words, I wanted to see the world and I didn't want to get scared away from seeing the okay. world. And I thought yeah. if the world is a place, place worth exploring, then it's a place worth taking risks to explore. So. Mm-hmm. Wow. I like that a lot. Wow. That's well, amazing. <laughs> yeah. I'm very impressed right now. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask what maybe it's hard to distill travel into one takeaway, but what's something that I guess moved you or stuck with you or you took away from traveling like that on your motorcycle? Yeah. I mean, you know, travel is, is really about perspective. It's about amplifying your kind of your, your, your horizontal view of life. And um, at least for me, I guess Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's different for everybody. And travel isn't just about seeing places. It's about engaging with people and engaging with people in, in a meaningful way. And I think one of the things that really worked to my advantage is that when you're, I did all of this on motorcycle and on a very low budget. Mm -hmm. And so people see you and they see you as being, you know, doing this thing that they haven't seen anyone else do probably in their whole lives or, you know, Mm -hmm. tearing through their town on a motorcycle, stopping, maybe, you know, getting something to eat. And, um, but what you evoke from people is the sense of your own vulnerability and people help, you know, people, people, I think in general are good, are nice, are caring, are loving. And when you evoke, when you let some, when you project your own vulnerability to someone else and you in a very kind of naked way, and when you're in a place where you know, no one, where you have very little of the local currency, where you are very, you know, dependent on people being kind to you. 
Mm-hmm. I think people appreciate that. And and what it gives you in response is people are more willing to be vulnerable themselves. And uh, so I really got to know people on this trip. And um, and getting to know people is the way that you, um, you know, you, you hear other people's stories, um, you know, and then you're able to make connections. You're able to have a better perspective on your own story. Um, and all of these things, I think, you know, uh, help in the, the project of writing. Oh, that's fair. That's a very good Damn. point. I like the idea mm-hmm. of a horizontal perspective. That's like very visual. But I have gotten off topic because actually, Malcolm, <laughs> I have a question for you. So because this book has a lot to do, well, there is an aspect of perhaps a romantic relationship talking about P and Buck. And it, it may be on the rocks. It may be something that that's, you know, I don't know, sturdy. But the question I have for you is what's an example of love you've seen depicted in media that made you believe in love? And maybe it doesn't have to be in media. It could also be in your real life or just something that really struck you as when I think of this, I think of love. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of, you know, examples if, you know, just thinking about the media. So I'm a, a child, you know, it was kind of the late 70s. I was coming into my kind of early, you know, um, they call the middle middle period, I guess. You're not like a little boy anymore, um, but you're not a, you're not a, a teenager either. Uh, in 79, and the movies that I saw in, in 79 were, were really, um, I remember them having a super impact on me. And uh, just kind of, you know, being very moving and things that I remember vividly, like years, years, years later. And and so in terms of, you know, thinking about media specifically, and I don't think media does a bad job of, of you know, re, re, you know, treating the subject of love and making it relatable uh, to other people. I think media, you know, popular media does get stepped by and large, you know, right. But I remember seeing this movie called The Champ, and it was... Uh, it was a, a boxing movie, and it was about this uh, this boxer late in his life and with a broken marriage and his son, and and it's about it's a love story, and it's you know what he's willing to do going back in the ring in his kind of way after the time when he should um, to do something for his son and his wife. And I remember being so blown away by that story. It was a, it was a, it was nominated for an Academy Award. Um, the movie was. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, seeing the the relationship between both I could relate to the broken marriage aspect. I could, you know, I loved seeing um, because my parents were divorced. Uh, I loved seeing uh, the, the, this idea, uh, uh, you know, the, this character, the father figure who has missed his opportunity um, to kind of mend things. But even mm-hmm. though it's too late, he's still kind of just desperate and willing to do this thing that's almost suicidal. In other words, if he gets back in the ring, it's going to, it's sure destruction, but he has no choice. It's, it's, if he's going to make this thing work with his son and his wife, it's what he's got to do. And of course, you know, uh, the movie kind of takes a tragic turn and he goes and he does this thing and, and everyone's cheering him on real, you know, we know he's doing it for the love of his family. And of course it doesn't come to, uh, to a good end. So that was a movie that had uh, a real kind of impact on me and, and seeing love in the way of sacrifice and love in the way of kind of what you're willing to do uh, to try to mend a relationship. I think, um, I think that that spoke to me in, in a very kind of, uh, in a, period, you know, a point in my life where I was really kind of, I needed, I needed that kind of a message. And just in terms of like dealing with my own family as a child. And so, Mm -hmm. um, 
so that was that's one. I think that generally moving, you know, going beyond media, I think anytime, you know, this idea of sacrifice, this idea of standing up for beliefs, this idea of principle when it doesn't when it doesn't benefit you is something that I find incredibly moving. So mm. when pe- when people do do what they know is right, um, even though they know it's not going to directly benefit them, um, is something that I just think is incredible. And uh, so, and that's a that would be another example, kind of going beyond popular media. Mm, so love, like agape love, love for people. Yeah, like love in the sense of what you're willing to do for others. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Wow, I moved mm. again. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's beautiful. How old were you again when you when you watched that movie? I was ten. You were ten. Oh my yeah. god. What did you pick up? Time. Did you pick up everything that you're, or was it like a feeling like you felt all those things and then later were able to put it into words? Oh yeah. It was a feeling. I mean, at 10, it's yeah. all. Feeling. Yeah, <laughs> you know? like, what are words? <laughs> yeah. The, the words come later. The words you only kind of you decipher it and you understand all that later. But, and, and that's part of the, the beauty of the, the feeling and what the, what books and movies are able to do when they cut through True. the fat and then they get straight to the heart. That's a good point. And you kind of see that in this book as well with Huey. You can tell he has a lot of feelings. He's understanding Mm -hmm. things, but putting them into words will probably take him a lot longer. Mm -hmm. So why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, we'll jump into our interview. back so yes um yes so malcolm this is all super interesting and like very lit um i guess we're sort of just curious to hear more about like i know you said that like after sort of working in you said it was like more like tech like software like you sort of like made this pivot into writing um i I guess i'm kind of curious to hear more about that transition and like i guess how you you know establish routines and like things of that nature Right. We like to hear about it because we like to ask our authors about it because everyone talks about writing and we all, you know, there's a lot of even, I guess, fanfare about writing. And it's almost like very intense. Everything nowadays is kind of like, go for the goal. Like you can do it like, very hard. you know, it's like very intense. And so it's right. nice to hear how people who actually have finished a book, like their process. Yeah. Um, well, when I, you know, while I was working, I had... I had been doing a little bit of of writing on you know my free time. Um, so mm-hmm. and even even you know at at Stanford, I I had signed up for a creative writing class, and although I didn't finish it, I I, I dropped it a few weeks in. Um, it wasn't for me. The type of the structure that they had built around the writing process, by, I knew wasn't going to work for me. Um, mm-hmm. So I had stopped. But I had been you know kind of it had been something that I had been toying with on different levels, um, albeit kind of mostly casual and informal. But it had been, I just kind of felt, you know, there's this, you know, there's a sense sometimes when, you know, you feel something welling up in you and you're trying to give it expression and you don't know how to give it expression. And some people that takes the form of painting, some people it's singing, writing songs. And I had this thing kind of just, I felt like there was something welling up inside me. I didn't know how to get it out. I didn't know what form it should take. And mm. um, so for me, when, you know, 
I talked about the need to, to take this adventure, to take this trip and kind of clear out the head, help with focus. And by the time that I, I reached Ecuador, I felt like I knew. And so literally I found a cheap room and I didn't have, and I went out and in, in town, like, like the, within days, a few days of having found this room and set myself up on a, in a practical way. And I got myself a typewriter and I just started, I just started writing and I had no idea what I wanted to write. I just started writing. Mm. And so for me, the thing was, I would just try to measure my, my writing success in terms of how long I would stay in my chair. And I'm a little bit, you know, kind of compulsive in that way. And, and I would just, I would spend incredibly long hours every day, you know, doing this. And so that mm-hmm. I had the benefit of having the whole day open to me. Um, mm-hmm. Like I basically went all in, um, I went whole hog and I, in that way, didn't have any other concerns. I didn't know anyone else. And I actually, even in this, my living arrangement was fortunate enough to, that came with the room. I had like someone else making, preparing meals for me. Uh, Marcy, you know, living in Ecuador, you mm. are probably familiar with the different the kind of setups that people have. And it's these things yep. in this country that would look incredibly luxurious, or it's just like, no, it's a basic kind of setup. There's someone there and you can get your meals and, and, and still have it be very economical. And so that's what I had. So the benefit was that I had just a completely open day and for months at a time and I was working intensely and my only goal was to try to like kind of um, hit a well and find something to give, you know, a clear focus of what it was I wanted to write about. But in, mm-hmm. but I didn't worry about that too much, although that was the goal. The main thing was, can I sit in a chair for extended periods of time and just do this thing called writing? And so I did that. I think the biggest, I did that for several months. I think the biggest, there was a point when my my um, money started to like empty out and I didn't have enough to even support me on that level. And mm. I had to like turn to, to someone for support and I had to make the decision, was I going to start working again or was I going to continue with this writing that had no direction, that had no focus, you know, it was just literally me just going through the process of writing this garbage. And I, I <laughs> but you have to be willing to go through that, right? I mean, you have to, you don't kind of magically arrive in places. You, you work yourself toward places, right? And mm-hmm. so writing is no different than traveling. I mean, you know, there is no such thing as time travel. You can't like will yourself to be someplace. You have to work your way towards there one step at a time. And I was committed. I think that I had an appreciation for process and I had an appreciation for time. And so but what this gave me was a real under, even though I had no focus, even though my writing was still very bad, what it did, it did a couple of things to me that were very practical and beneficial. One was that I proved to myself that I could stay in and I could write for like days on end for extremely long periods of time. And two, I developed a really kind of solid sense of my own writing process. And mm-hmm. I went go through phases where I would write at night, where I would write in the afternoon, where I would write in the morning. And I kind of evolved into this rhythm. Uh, over months now, because I, I was in Ecuador writing for almost four years, mm. that um, I had evolved a rhythm where I wrote early, extremely early in the morning and like at the crack of dawn. And I would write for three hours, um, maybe as much as three and a half, as little as like, you know, two and a half, three, but rarely mm. less than that. And then I would kind of have a, a midday break. I'd have a lunch and I would take a nap. And the nap would let me clear out my head. And it was as if I were able to get two days in one because I would wake up, I would feel refreshed, ah. clean, clear again. And uh, and I would I would have a sec what I called my second shift. And I, it would be another period of like around three hours. And so I got a sense of my own like kind of creative cycle. And I was able to 
to tap into that and know that that worked for me. And I've carried that with me, you know, since. So my process ever since has been, um, you know, very early in the morning and kind of taking a break in the afternoon and then going in again for three hours. And I think you could only kind of, for everyone, it's different, right? But you can mm -hmm. only really figure it out. I mean, there are lots of ways to figure it out, but an effective way to figure it out is when you give yourself the luxury of the whole day to work with for a long period of time and let yourself mm -hmm. evolve into one. And instead of having to force fit one that may or may not work for you, and then you have to kind of figure out, is it me or is it the routine that I'm kind of like trying to shoehorn in myself into? I never had that problem. So that's that's how I, I grew into my routine. Wow. I, yeah. I think that's, it's cool. Oh, sorry. Marcy, sorry. You no, sorry. No, Akko, you go. You go. <laughs> I was going to say the idea of evolving your process is really interesting to hear because usually you think, oh, I have to have a process. And then I use that process to write a book. But the idea of like, well, you might not know what your process is. You can figure that out while you're writing or give yourself the space to figure it out. I think that's cool. That's right. And I also just love how I think this is also very like personally resonant just because like like you prioritize your writing so much in like your day to day. Like it was just like, you know, this is like I'm going to like direct sort of like how I spend like how I spend my time around this. And I just find that to be so beautiful because I feel like for this is like kind of a tangent, but like, I, I don't know. I feel like for me, sometimes <laughs> it's, it's like I'm like trying to get more into writing and things like that. And it's like sometimes it's hard when it's like, you know, you're balancing like, you know, full time work and things like that. And it's just like just like that notion of like making time for yourself. I feel like it's something that I'm still like learning, um, mm. like learning to see like the creative work that I do is like just as much, if not more important than the, you know, I guess the money work <laughs> that mm -hmm. I do. Like, I feel like there's a lot of, there about like, you know, respectability and like, you know, just I guess, fitting into society in a certain way. And I feel like just the notion of like being like, oh, this is actually my creative process. And like what, I, like these ventures that I'm working on are actually so important that this is going to take precedence is like really like beautiful and revolutionary. And I just like love that. So like, yes, like, thank God. <laughs> like that's, that's amazing. And I guess while you were in Ecuador, like writing for four years, is that kind of where they come in all colors sort of started to develop? Or like, I'm kind of curious how, that book sort of like sort of came to came to exist and what sort of the inspiration behind it was. Yeah. Well, it definitely came out of that, 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 that work. Um, not directly though. So I had made a promise to myself that I wasn't going to come back to the States until I had a, um, a kind of a fully fledged manuscript. And so I did, uh, I had, I had written about 400 pages of, of what was, you know, ostensibly a story. And mm -hmm. I came back and, I was living with a um, a friend because I was penniless when I came back, and I was actually living in a friend's basement. And um, I had, you know, I was sending the manuscript out. I was doing all of the usual work in, in the way of trying to find representation. And, and it took me about four months before I realized that I had a dreadful kind of um, disaster on my hands. And, and it was, the manuscript was terrible. And and oh. it, was, it was a complete, it was a complete failure. Oh, no. And um, well, I mean... Yeah, it was it was pretty bad. It was a it was a personal low. I don't think I'd ever felt, you know, in that sense. Uh, it was I almost had a nervous breakdown um, because I put everything on the line. I had forsaken a really good kind of career in in tech to do this, and and I had done you know, and I had executed on kind of a, albeit a haphazard plan. I had executed on a plan well in the sense that I had been down there where I'd been writing with focus for a very long time. Come back mm -hmm. with something that I could you know show people. So that part was successful. It had a beginning, middle, and an end, mm -hmm. um, but it just happened to be terrible. 
And so I, I, I Fuck. <laughs> but which is, which is more con, which is more the rule than the exception. Right. And, uh, and it's part of like living that, that is, I think really important. And that's where the, that's where the growing happens. And so mm-hmm. for me, what the growing looked like was getting a handle on, on what the heck was going on and what to do. So part of that was uh, tapping into some really good advice. And I was fortunate enough to have someone who was um, in the publishing business, albeit, and I kind of worked for a small regional publication magazine up in Maine. That's where I came back to. That's where my friend was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she had basically convinced me because at that point you wonder, should I give up or not? Right. Is this just uh, is this a lost cause? What do I do? And you have to be, you know, the dreaminess kind of fades away. Right. The glorification of writing fades mm-hmm. away. And so I had to make that decision. And so this person was very kind and had read through the manuscript and was someone who was giving me feedback. And, you know, I basically cried on her shoulders one day in the Brunswick Public Library while she's breaking, you know, kind of breaking things down for me. And uh, but what she had said to me that, you know, s- stick with me to this day was that, you know, it's not that you can't write so much. It's just that you really bit off more than you can chew. And so you started off trying to write this and build this immense castle and you should start with a more modest construction. And mm. so and that really resonated. And so meaning for me, practically, that I needed to write more shorter works. And so so I took that advice. Mm. And after I had recovered. I started acting on it. And so I refused to accept that the four years that I spent in Ecuador, near four years that I had spent in Ecuador was a waste of my time. And I was just trying to figure out, you know, what was it that I had learned? And obviously I had learned a lot, but in terms of like a concrete kind of um, creative work, what what could I get out of that? And after I had started writing again, a shorter, uh, short, short stories, I realized that there was a germ of something that I had hit on in the novel, and it took me a while to realize what it was, and that mm-hmm. was Fairchild. And so I had struck on this ah. character that I realized would was the basis for a book. And so while he was only tangentially apparent in this previous manuscript, I realized that I could construct an entire world around him. And so that was the basis for They Come in All Colors. Interesting, interesting. And like, I'm, I'm curious, the previous manuscript that you wrote, did it have sort of similar touchings on like race and sort of like, you know, the civil rights movement and things like that? Or was it like a completely different? Well, in a, in a of- way, it was more, it was more a period piece in the bad way. It was kind of more, it didn't kind of, you know, erupt into its own um, artistic voice. It was more trying to be other things rather than mm. kind of realizing what it was. And, mm. and 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 really elaborating that. I see more mm. like echoing perhaps someone else's voice or maybe yeah. Mary, yeah. I, I mean, when you when you start writing, right, the best way to do is by you kind of mimic other things that you like, and mm. and there are ways to do that, and there are bad ways to do that. And I had done that in a bad, unoriginal way, and but it was made perfect sense looking back on it. I mean, that was how I kind of I had to work my way through that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. Have I couldn't have arrived at with at the realization that Huey Fairchild was, you know, the could could be the basis of a uh, and his family could be the basis of a, of an amazing story without having gone through those steps, right? right. I had to take right. those steps and to look back and see them for the failure that they were, have that demonstrated to me before I had like, you know, before I could say with one hundred percent confidence that yeah, that doesn't work. This other thing can work, right. So it's kind of similar in a way to the you, the way you talk about travel and the way you talk about the writing process. It's a process to find the characters or almost glean them out of, I don't know, not the like miasma, that sounds like crazy, but you know, like <laughs> glean them out of your thoughts or the story and to kind of be like, oh, wait, I've, 
I feel like Huey is a person. I kind of see him in my writing. What if I just picked him out and focused on him? And so that's really interesting to hear you say that. And I don't think your travels were a waste at all. Obviously, you don't think that either. But mm. I think anything that gets you somewhere else, it, it's a, it's a, the life is the journey. So anything that gets you somewhere else or even is an experience in itself is worthwhile yeah. endeavor. Mm. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Um, and I guess speaking of your travels, um, so you've lived in like a bunch of different places. Like, I mean, on top of your like your time in South America, like just looking at your bio, you know, it seems like you also spent time in like Germany and Spain and Morocco. I'm kind of curious, like how living in all those different contexts sort of impacted your own racial analysis through time mm-hmm. and like how that evolved racial analysis like impacted they come in all colors. Yeah, I mean, so you see how kind of, I think for me, it, it has helped me, you know, see how race impacts other parts of the world, other realities. And, and so that, that, that has really, um, I I think it's helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, these are concepts that different places or people who live in different parts of the world struggle with, and their struggles with them are different. Um, They don't look the same as ours. Their history is different than, than ours, our history here in the U.S., um, around, you know, race relations, specifically African-Americans or blacks and and whites. And for me, it's like really helped to kind of, it gives me an important perspective. Mm. And I think that, you know, one of the risks is that, you know, when we're kind of so tied to our own issues and so tied to the issues that affect us so kind of intimately, so dearly and often so painfully, um, that it kind of blinds us to other things that might be going on and mm-hmm. affecting other people. Um, and, and it's easy to forget that, you know, while our pain might be, you know, acute and even severe and oftentimes severe, it's not the only one, that there's a lot of pain and hurt, you know, kind of spread around. And I think that that's, you know, I think especially for writers, it's important to write with that perspective. Um, especially if you want to re- reach broad audiences, you you want to mm. be able to project to the uh, to your readers who uh, you know. I think we want to be as broad as possible. I think that's the goal that that you're that you're not deaf to the things that are going on with them either, and that you may be writing about what's going on with you, but you're writing ab- about it from such a point of openness and honesty and vulnerability that you're able to make connections, and that you're able also kind of in writing your own story you know, that, that relates to your own history, who you are, uh, who your family is and where your family members came from and the impact that weighs down on you. But in kind of doing that in a naked way, that you, you, cre- you, you in, invariably will create a resonance like a, that, that, that creates this kind of, uh, that makes it universal, that will mm-hmm. be the thing that other people connect with whose story is different. And so in doing that, I think that in kind of having this perspective that comes with like close intimate relationships with people that have a completely different take on life, you know, you're able to do, you're able to do, you kind of uh, improve your ear for that. You, you, you're able to do that more easily. I think it's only by in the same way that like when you write something, it's hard to see kind of your own problems in your writing. That's why we need editors. That's why we need like a favorite reader, right? Because someone else can point something out to us about something that we've done. And it's not that we were 
like kind of, you know, physically or, you know, in some way completely incapable of doing it. It's it's mm-hmm. like the person makes it much easier to see something else. And then when we see that, we're able to mm-hmm. act on it and and make certain changes. And then I feel like there are things in life that we need that can only come from other people pointing things out to us or sharing their stories or, you know, in, a, in an intimate way, in a way that's like that comes from, you know, friendship, that comes from trust, right? And then when we write, you know, we're still writing our story, but we're, we're writing about it in a way where it's not just our story. It's actually kind of in some way enveloping this broader experience and whether it be through connections or whether it be just like by the fact that we're, we're willing to go to a place that, you know, um, that is special uh, mm-hmm. and, and have other people allow for other people to see their own experience in ours, something that they can relate to in the experience that we write about. You know, I think that that's, uh, I think that engaging with other people and um, in that way is, uh, is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. I can definitely say that I agree with your point about ex- expanding your worldview. And I feel like on the flip side, being able to go outside your culture allows you to see perhaps the fragility of your culture, of the yeah. the different social mm. constructions that have been created. And it almost gives you this, it's like jumping into a parallel universe where you're suddenly shaken from, you, you thought the world only le- worked one way and then... All of a sudden, you're like, oh, that's a construction. What I am like as a transcendental being is so much more than what I've been told I am. So I agree with you. that It's both. It helps you do both, which is really cool. And you kind of see that in the story, too, where Huey flips from being in the South to the North. Even that is enough to change, mm-hmm. you know, his, his, how he can identify how he wants to see himself. Um, but I, I wanted to talk about a very specific, well, not specific, but an underlying current in this book, which is P and Buck's relationship. I, I'm so conflicted about them. I, sometimes I'm angry about them. Um, and I I just mm-hmm. find it's 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 so they there it's it's as we know, the loving versus loving case, which is this famous case that allowed for interracial relationships. And it's this, you know, almost fairy not fairy tale because it, it had its struggles. But, you know, the ending is the type of ending that makes you believe in love. You know, it, it works out. They never leave each other. They love each other. You know, it's it's great. But this story is mm-hmm. not that. And I, I wanted to hear what inspired you to write this story, why you felt this was a story that needed to be written, or just, just your thoughts on P and Buck in general. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to write about, you know, an interracial relationship that kind of speaks to um, what, in my view, are kind of real kind of world experiences. And I find, um, you know, that the fact of the matter is people are really complicated and people do things for all for for all kinds of reasons and and it's not that when people you know do things when they act in particular ways that it's there isn't a rationale behind it but the rationale may be really hard to kind of construct and interpret and understand and but there is you know there are reasons why i believe at least why we do things even if they're hard to kind of piece together and Buck's relationship with P uh, is an incredibly complicated one. And I kind of resist these facile descriptions of interracial love and whether they are all with their fraught with tragedy. You know, they, are, they either go, you know, uh, to one extreme or the other, right? Either it's a fairy tale mm-hmm. or it's kind of doomed from the start. And I wanted kind of Buck's and really uh, Peel's relationship to 
be to have more of the kind of what I what I perceive as like the inner complexity of of the real world in them, um, where it's not one or the other, but in some complicated kind of gray area in between. And so mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, is that Buck is a white man uh, growing up in this pure, uh, you know, raised in this region in this period, and and cannot cannot escape the reality of his existence. And now there happen to be some circumstances that have, you know, uh, opened him up to this relationship with Piola that he has per- that he has pursued. And we, as mm-hmm. we discover, you know, in many respects, naively. Now, the, the, the story is about his kind of uh, confronting some aspects of that relationship in this small town that he hasn't entirely been honest with himself about. And, and that, that while reality looked a certain way in this town, people were willing to marginalize him and to, to effectively, you know, turn a blind eye to this relationship that he's been maintaining. But when that reality changes, when... Mm-hmm. Um, Buck will have to make ultimately make a decision, and uh, and it's that point that I wanted to kind of grow out in the story, uh, in that part of the story, and to show where Buck cannot continue existing in this relationship in the way that he has, where uh, life is starting to change around him, and people are being required to draw up sides. And can mm. we imagine that you know happening? Of course we can. And so Buck is forced to do that. And when forced to do that, he does it in a way that isn't entirely expected, but is not surprising either. Mm. No, that's so that's so real. Because, yeah, Buck very much had this energy of like trying to play both sides. It's like, you know, I'm like I'm obviously still a white person in this like southern place and like trying to like kind of move through that privilege. But at the same time, like. It's like even with his relationship with P, it was always this like, oh, but like, you know, she's like the exception, like, you know, I don't see color, like blah, blah, blah. It's just, it was very like, like tepid. And it was just kind of like, okay, but but in this context, you actually, I mean, even if the context were less violent, like you still, like, like your, your partner is a black woman. Like you need to actually acknowledge that and like move through that versus just being like, oh, but like love conquers all. It's like, okay, but girl, like you actually... Like it, it's actually not that simple, though. Like it's like right. you can't be so like oblivious to to what's actually going on. And honestly, it was interesting because I remember in part one, Akko and I were like, "Oh, girl, like Buck probably did something wild. Like that's probably why they had to like you know go to New York. Like oh my god, like it's probably like right. you know there was like some <laughs> wild shit that he did. But it was really, I mean, when they actually left, it was kind of, I mean, it was far more peaceful than I mean granted there was still like emotional emotional turmoil like you know obviously P was really emotional during mm-hmm. all of that but it was just like you know they got on a bus and Buck just didn't get on that same bus right. and it just it was almost unceremonious like it was just like it was all this buildup and you're in like all this conflict and it's just they just left you know it's just right. I don't know and I guess and I'm, I'm not sure what's what's worse that it's like Buck just decided to to stay and even in the aftermath of all of that just like kind of just fell off like you know we see that Huey talks about how like you know he doesn't really call like I mean he sends these letters every now and again but ultimately like Buck just kind of moved on and it's just like it just kind of seems like why even go through all that struggle with people back in Akersburg just to like end up on their side anyway and act as if nothing had happened I don't know maybe that's like that's my interpretation of it part of it is that you know Buck as an individual 
I mean, you, you touched on it, right? Buck, so first of all, Buck early on is trying to have it both ways, and he's willing to stay in the relationship to the extent that he can, right? And so that changes at a, at a critical juncture in the story when he cannot have it both ways. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he clearly loves P, but hasn't confronted, you know, he, he hasn't fully kind of squared off with what sacrifices he's willing to make in the name of that love. Right. And I think that that kind of jibes with a lot of people's reality where you don't, you know, if you're allowed, if you are afforded the luxury of kind of deluding yourself, um, you will keep living in that delusion until it, until the moment that it becomes mm-hmm. untenable. Mm-hmm. And then you will have to make hard decisions. So I think that's the more honest representation of Buck. He's kind of deluded himself about Piola. Piola is this incredibly beautiful, very fair-skinned black woman or woman of color, however you want to categorize her. He is able to convince himself that she is so different that she is only nominally this other thing that people want to describe to her, describe her as. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people that do that. And that yeah. is, in fact, that, that corresponds with, with reality quite nicely. And in fact, I've known people who, I've, an individual, I should say, and I, was, I can give you an anecdote. It's really neither here nor there, but where people have in, you know, incredible ability to kind of pretend that reality is other than it really is. Right. And, mm. and I don't think that that requires a, 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 lar- a stretch. And as painful as it is for, for and, and this is kind of playing out. So you have Buck's, the reality that Buck has, you know, the nature of Buck's delusion kind of mm-hmm. drying up. At the same time, when Piola realizes, or Piola herself has only been in this relationship with Buck to the extent that her son gets some of the privileges that that entitles him to. And when that withers away, then she is willing to change, you know, change up uh, her her life as well, and that's what m- motivates her to seek, the, you know, uh, uh, to leave. So mm-hmm. these two, you know, these two people, their life, the reality in which they've been allowed to kind of coexist, has fundamentally changed, and so the the so the calculation that each of them has made is changing. Right, and so gotcha. and it looks. Yeah, and it looks different for both. So for Piola, while her son can, and when she realizes that Huey's not going to be able to go to that school anymore, and that Buck's not willing to, to you know, to go to bat for him in the way that she wanted or expected, or at least you know, let herself to let herself believe, then she realizes, and that was a big part of why she was willing to sustain, be in that relationship. Not all of it. She loved him, but it was a big part. And so when mm-hmm. that changes. You know, she ultimately wants to do what's ever f- best for Huey. And that was a big part of her kind of excusing a lot in the relationship with Buck, right? As ugly right. as it was. It was right. like, this is going to make sure that Huey has the best possible chances for, you know, for his future. And then that changes. Right. And, so, and she changes as mm-hmm. a result. Yeah. When we were reading, I think part two, me and Marcy kind of talked about the fact that it's there's almost like um. Uh, looking at their personal, this microscopic view of Oxberg and, and their relationship, you see this sort of larger picture of a change in eras, right? So you have this, because Buck Fairchild, it's very clear that his great-great-grandparents were slave owners, and it's kind of continued without, you know, actual slavery needing to be put in laws, but it's continued with Toby, and then at the very end with Evan a little bit, it's hinted. And yes. you see that 
to your point about everyone was making a a benefit cost benefit analysis i mean they loved each other as they say um but they also were making a cost benefit analysis about the socio-political you know era that they lived in and that era suddenly very strongly and and almost drastically comes to an end with the civil rights movement there's a complete paradigm shift yes and it's interesting because reading they come in all colors kind of shows you why people are so adamantly angry about a change in paradigm shifts about a change an end of an era even if the era was slowly dying anyway right because buck's trying to trade on his name when he gets tries to get a loan and it's not working and all the the earlier prestige of his fair fair child name is (laughs) (laughs) it's sort of out the window but you can see why people hold on so strongly especially in the face of a change in an era because they're watching everything wither away. It does it's not right obviously because you, you can you're not justified in enslaving people and right, not right. paying them. But when you have that power and you're like just like we were saying it's so jarring to to suddenly shift into a parallel existence where all the power structures work differently. You're like okay, but like for 20 years I've I've made whole life decisions based on this being the exactly. reality. Now you're telling me it's not the reality. So that was really depicted in this book. And that was really interesting to read. Yeah. You know, I think, I think you're right. I mean, that is what you're saying is, 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 is exactly right. And is exactly what, what happened. And, and just having the, as you, you know, say, the understanding is very powerful. It's not about justifying. It's about getting it. Right. So we, Mm -hmm. we see what, what the perceived risk is from, from others. And uh, yeah. Yeah. That was interesting. Interesting, interesting. Also, I guess switching gears a little bit, I do want to talk uh, a bit about Huey. Oh, yeah. Um, So, you know, the way the book is written, it's sort of like kind of this back and forth, like, you know, obviously, like, you know, Huey's like current day, like 15 years old, but like he's telling the story of like him when he's eight, but it was written such in a way that it was, it kind of switched perspectives. Like, you know, sometimes it'd be current day, but it was mostly sort of him in the past. I guess like, what was the reasoning for writing the story like in that way versus kind of like a more chronological, let's start when Huey was eight and just kind of gradually move forward versus, you know, sort of the ping pong approach that kind of ended up happening. Yeah, I mean, I think that was really hard to to figure out, um, first of all. And I wanted to, you know, there came a point in, in evolving the story where I realized that I wanted to capture as much as I could of the events and have that and have them be relayed in as kind of in an intimate way where we're almost, you know, where we have very little narrative distance and mm-hmm. uh, where the narrative distance is cut down to a minimum. And so... Um, at the same time, you know, like you obviously, it's it's an incredible challenge to do that in a, on a very kind of um, complex theme when you're, you know, relating a eight year old's take on the world. Um, so I wanted to do, you know, I, I struggled with that, and I landed on the the kind of early teenage years as being a sweet spot, and so that was one thing. So then I wanted to. Uh, you know, I didn't want to, in other words, I didn't want to have this be an old person looking back at an earlier point on their life, giving you the events and then wait a bunch of unwanted reflection. And, <laughs> and, you know, uh, and that is not what I wanted. I wanted you to get the sense of the vulnerability and the innocence of the character who's just giving you the naked view of reality that they're getting 
And I thought it would be really precious if you could do that in some of, in such a way where you see the unknowing of this individual, right? Mm. Who's telling you the events. And you as the reader bring more understanding than the actual person telling you the events. If that can be done right. well, that's incredibly powerful. And so that was that was the goal. But of course, as I said, you know, you can't have an eight-year-old do that in 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 a way that it it, it looks, you know, believable that it's an eight-year-old because we know eight-year-olds can only articulate so much. Um, mm-hmm. But if but a fifteen-year-old is a little bit different, and so uh, they have a bit more of a vocabulary, especially if they've already kind of established the fact that they're gifted in this particular way, and they're and they're smart. Um, then we can believe that, okay, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing to kind of uh, suspend disbelief and, and, and accept that a 15-year-old is recounting these events. The reason that I did the back and forth was because that in writing The New York, I realized that, that there are a couple of opportunities that I couldn't walk away from. That there's a, there, there's a beautiful arc that presented itself with Piola and presented itself in terms of the way of the, the Great Migration. Mm-hmm. Um, it presented itself in terms of the North-South di- dichotomy. And where it would be beautiful to have this character who's in, who's encountered these events, and he's telling you about that from his eight-year-old self, and he's telling you about them in relationship to this thing that happened to the place that they escaped to, and mm-hmm. so that 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 gave me this this you know opportunity to tell these two different stories: what's going on in New York City and how that relates to like to uh, to what happened in Akersburg, and we see you know because of that relationship why it's so special, you know, to understand how the understanding of Akersburg really informs us about the intensity of how Huey takes what happens to him right. in New York City. You know, mm. it's not there it's not something that happened in kind of in a vacuum. It's something mm. that happened in the context of this rich, rich background where he struggled so hard to get away from this thing and he just can't. It's still with him. And mm. so that's uh and 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 also, you know, Huey evolves, but Huey becomes this person who who all of a sudden has access to this privileged education and for us to like to scrutinize that and and Huey gets to scrutinize that and and mm-hmm. so there were just some things that I couldn't um that I couldn't walk away from that were they were too potentially rich and that I needed to try to see if I I could kind of fold into to the story. So that's why the the split setting. That's why mm. the, you know the the two timelines. Mm. What I like about the two timelines, and actually the fact that he's reflecting as a fifteen year old. Usually, when you when someone's fifteen and they're recounting a story, they're usually recounting it to like six months ago or something. They they don't go back to eight. But what what's great about that is because it's if if someone's thirty and they're recounting something, they can kind of explain fill in the gaps for you. And Mm. explain everything. But that's not how people work. In a lot of ways, when you're 15, you do have to process something that happened at eight. But at 15, there's so much you can't process because you're only 15. Mm -hmm. And so it has that um, unreliable narrator aspect to it. So as the reader, when Huey is eight, you can not discount a lot of what he's saying, but you can fill in a lot of the gaps yourself. And you're like, oh, this is what's happening. And me and Marcy were saying it's almost like a horror film because you're... Mm. 
you're in, you're watching this eight year old have to deal with these things that you you know <laughs> what's mm-hmm. the the context of, but watching this child go through it, you're like, oh my god, what he's trying to deal with is so heavy, and he can't mm-hmm. he doesn't have the processing for it. And mm-hmm. then you switch to a fifteen year old, and he's more confident, and so you you know sometimes you're like, Huey, I cannot stand you, like <laughs> you are, <laughs> and he almost feels like an adult. But then you pull yourself back, and you know, and he when he you know like punches um. Ariel Zukowski in the face you're suddenly like oh you're you're also you're still not telling us the truth you're still an unreliable narrator because you're 15 (laughs) there's so much that you're processing (laughs) and it's just it's it's just nice it's it's, to put it really allows yourself to be in that headspace and and sort Mm -hmm. of remember what you were like at 15 and how you Mm -hmm. tried to deal with traumatic things that happened to you so I thought that was a a very good literary technique I thought it worked well thank you same, 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 same. And spe- speaking of Huey and Zukowski, um, so when, I guess when Huey gets arrested and, you know, it comes out that, like, he, I- I'm not sure to what extent it was, it was unintentional, but, like, basically Zukowski was poisoned. Um, like, I guess, like, how and, and why did Huey do that? And, like, I guess was there an explicit reason why, you know, I guess the book didn't necessarily go into a lot of details around that specific incident? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, so he he poisons his best friend who has a peanut allergy by smearing peanut butter in his tuna fish sandwich. Yeah. And, oh my gosh. Okay. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. I was like, where? When did he poison him? Oh my so, God. <laughs> hard time remembering. So and 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 so that plays on the fact that you know, I mean, we have a wonderful tie-in with Akersburg because his father happens to have been a peanut farmer, right. and Huey has this rich kind of familiarity with peanuts but anyway that's neither here nor there in terms of the poisoning the poisoning is that ariel zakowski is is has a peanut allergy and and um you know almost chokes to death um uh when huey does that the reason why huey does that uh, is there's a you know needs a little bit more explaining so huey clearly you know sets out from the very beginning of the story the the beauty of his relationship with zuck because you know, they go to this like incredibly elite uh, private school in the city, and mm-hmm. they are the only two um, that we learn of, that we hear of, that are kind of outside the social class of that school. Um, so it becomes an intensely important bond w- for Huey, um, and one can presume for for Zuck as well. Uh, although there is a difference, Huey is of color, and Zuck is not, and so. Uh, what this story is about, uh, the the New York branch of the story, is about teasing out the nature of that what how that limitation kind of emerges on an emotional level in the story. Mm. And so when Huey realized the limits of he has this beautiful what appears to be uh, this beautiful uh, relationship, and then he gets betrayed, and he's he is related to us, the betrayal, when he is outed because Huey is someone who still has a conflict of his race and passes when he can uh, for convenience sake. And um, so there is a moment in when Huey is pursuing a, a, a romantic interest uh, when uh, Sikowski uh, intervenes in a, in a very kind of insidious and hurtful way. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Huey lashes out at his friend, realizing in that moment that his friend is is progressive 
uh, when it's convenient. But at the minute, you know, the moment when it presents a kind of a sacrifice for him that he's not prepared to make is not above kind of calling on the privileges of his race. Right. Mm. And in that sense has more in common with the kids that he goes to school with than Huey does. Right. And it's that's such an interesting analysis because then it shows you the sort of South North racism, the the flavors of racism in America, you know. And it's in the South, it's very obvious in your face, and in the North, it's as he was he was explaining. He's like, sometimes I just hear them say the N word under their their breath. It's sort of this insidiousness, this this sort of um, subtle, but then it it strikes you at a moment of weakness, and and so yeah, again, it's another microcosm which I liked as well. And so the language that we have now is that you hear everyone talking about microaggressions. And so, of course, right. that's what that's what Huey is relating uh, in his own experience, although he doesn't have that language yet. Mm. Although I hate the term microaggressions because I feel like people think it. I don't hate it. That's a strong word. But uh, I people make it, it. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> it just it makes it feel like it's not it's small. But what he what like it's almost what Zuck is doing at that moment. He's so he knows Huey so well that he knows that I can just do this little thing. Yep. And this will ruin your day. And that's yeah, almost harder to fight than someone being very obviously terrible to you. So, but yes, but mm-hmm. Marcy, I think you had a really good question that I wanted to throw to you. Yes. So I guess, you know, the book ends in this very kind of optimistic tone, you know, with like Huey hanging out with his mom and they're like kind of just like king and just like enjoying themselves. And like, you know, P is talking about how she wants to become a CPA and all of all of this. And, you know, Huey obviously was just expelled from Claremont prep, but like the tone of the book isn't one where it's like, okay, well it's all over. It's like, okay, there's, there's potential here. So from your perspective, I'd be curious to hear, where do you see Huey and P in 10 years from the end of the book? Yeah. Um, well, I would say that, you know, if you just kind of following their arc, so, so they've, they've both evolved quite a bit from their Akersburg, you know, selves. And, um, at that point, and we're in 69 when the book ends. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, obviously Piola has evolved quite a bit, her worldview, her view on, on politics, uh, has evolved and Huey's as and Huey's as well. And, you know, Huey, while is not entirely out of the woods, I mean, he certainly has, mm. He mm-hmm. certainly has an, an increased awareness, but as we kind of see that as relates to his, you know, how, how much he relates back to uh, Toby and the, the events of, uh, surrounding Toby Muncie and, and his and his unwillingness to kind of take pride in his heritage mm. and to want to mm. hide that, at least in the context of this kind of uh, elite uh, environment, we know that he's not out of the woods, but we know that he's also potentially on his way, uh, which I think is a good landing point for him. Um, I think it's a it's an it's a it's an honest landing point for him at that point of yeah, this. Yeah, for fifteen. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, who is it all adjusted at fifteen? Um, Come on. I see, I see Piola as being more vocally political, uh, mm. for sure. Um, I think that she would be someone who would be kind of evolving her, you know, her kind of political self, and so yeah, just engaged politically. Um, uh, you know, so you know now we're at a point i mean so we're well beyond you know the 10-year frame obviously that you're talking about but mm. but how these social movements come back around in new and interesting ways you know so we can talk about like the me too movement and and all of these things like we thought we were we had made so much progress and then we have this kind of grim reminder that well maybe not and uh 
and 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 the new movements that form around that kind of uh, recognition. And uh, I, I see her as being very vocal in, in that way. So um, more politically engaged, for sure. And she's someone who clearly, you know, has the the will and the ability to improve her own personal station in life. And uh, yeah, and just and just and just more confident in her, in her own voice and speaking out a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I see, you know, and I see I see Huey in much the same uh, much the same way. I think Huey is kind of his position is a little bit less, you know, it's not nakedly political in the sense that I think Huey would want to make some money probably, uh, you know, as we see kind of generational differences between families. When you come from a poor family, the kids usually just want to get out of that poverty. And even mm-hmm. if the pov- even if the even if the lack of money has been somewhat kind of self-willed in the sense that someone's an artist or someone is, you know, maybe a teacher and they take a profession where they're just by design not making a lot of money. You know, very frequently, you know, the children, you know, have different views on kind of setting themselves up financially. And mm-hmm. I, I see Huey's wanting to do that and um, and just becoming more politically engaged. Um, I think that he's on definitely on that path. Mm. Mm. Okay. Mm. I can see that. I, I feel like Huey could go a different direction, too. But I guess we'll never know. Like, <laughs> at least not now. But um. Uh, I had a question that's a little bit on the funnier side. Have you ever seen The Boondocks? No, I haven't. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> the Boondocks is um it's what's it? Aaron McGruger wrote it. Um it was a comic strip in the early 2000s and it, then it was a a television show an anime um well, an American anime, but it's it follows the story of Huey Freeman and his younger brother Riley Freeman and their grandfather, and mm-hmm. it's so interesting because I believe he's he might be ten and Riley might be eight, but they also deal with issues of of, of sort of race and then being these so there are these <laughs> these two black boys from <laughs> Chicago from the south side of Chicago who then are moved their grandfather you know has his retirement money and he lives and um. This I think I can't remember the name of the neighborhood, but it's this very rich white neighborhood, and he moves his two grandsons there to live with him. And it's Huey is like um, this revolutionary. <laughs> He's a very strong, and, and and Riley is very much a, a kind of a caricature of of sort of um, yeah, it's like <laughs> a new age rap culture. I I can't even really describe Riley's his own character, but it was just so funny to read this Huey Fairchild and then this Huey Freeman and it's sort mm-hmm. of the two. Metaphorical uses of their last name and, and what they represent, and I was wondering if there is any connection whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe no. Not. I'll have to check it out. I'll have to check it out. So, oh and where, where do you see Huey? Where you said that you could potentially see Huey at some different place in ten years? Where Where was that? I think he could very well not try to change the way he sees himself. And say, okay, I'm I'm light enough to pass, and the you know it's the '70s now, and it's almost like people are saying like, oh, th- you're almost like the the mixed kid that we want, quote unquote, you know, and then mm-hmm. and 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 sort of trading on that advantage uh, uh, to see how far it can get him. Not mm-hmm. maybe and not a good way, but I guess the point is, it's not always the case that people examine deeply <laughs> and try to mm-hmm. try to change. Um, mm-hmm. c- kind of in the same way, I I liked. 
the metaphor with his arm being broken continuously because Mm -hmm. it feels like Huey is going through a lot of mental trauma over and over again at eight. Mm -hmm. And you can't physically see that because it's it's in his mind. Mm -hmm. So I I feel like Huey could still be trapped in his head Mm -hmm. with race relations. Mm -hmm. And that could continue for a long time because Mm -hmm. that's not something that's easy to parse out or even to, to get rid of. So that's, that's kind of something Mm -hmm. that I could see happening. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, I guess before. Sorry, I'm like still weak on the boondocks. Like, Malcolm, you gotta check it out. It, it is funny. Like it. I will. Just, Absolutely. Oh my god, it is, it is such a program. But anyway, um, so I guess uh, as we wrap up, something that I thought was really, really interesting about um, the book is that at the very end, there's like a number of like book club discussion questions. Like, I've literally, I had literally never seen something like that before. And so, I guess, like, kind of on a similar vein, like, are there any, like, is there like one book or maybe like a small number of books that you'll recommend to our readers or Ooh. rather to our listeners um, that could kind of help them further explore these issues or maybe that even just served as like a source of inspiration behind the Come in All Colors? Yeah. I mean, you know, depending on where the focus is, I think that for me, if you're interested in uh, passing, which is obviously a very big component mm-hmm. of this story, James Weldon Johnson has a really good uh, book, if you're not familiar with him, The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, um, mm-hmm. that I feel is is very valuable and very rich. And And you're not only getting passing, but you're also, I think what's important is to is that readers who enjoy this subject, um, whether it's of personal interest, you know, or just kind of, you know, not, that these are very old issues. And the the topic of passing has been one that's been part of our culture, you know, pretty much since people have been, you know, mixing, and uh, which they've been doing from the very beginning. Uh, so the whole whole notion of, well, what are you and the whole notion of, you know, picking sides and of kind of proclaiming loyalties is something that, that, that <laughs> dates back to, um, you know, to slavery and, mm-hmm. to, you know, and, and, and not, not only that, but, you know, pre-slavery with uh, just colonization and, and the native populations. And so dealing with mixed race identity and, um, and how that gets, you know, how that's handled both on a sociological level and on a personal level. So I found the um, James Weldon Johnson's book to be incredibly interesting because it's, it's a, you know, it's written about an earlier period in our history. Um, and it's dealing with someone who can pass and how he, uh, how he manages that. Um, so that's a book of interest. And Nella Larson is another one, I think, who actually has a book titled um, Passing, which is another, uh, another, you know, one that gives us a, a historical kind of context. And then more contemporary um, mm-hmm. and uh, is you have, you know, uh, Loving Day, Matt Johnson. There's another title that I think is uh, would be of interest. Aside from those, I you know I'm an advocate of reading is is reading broadly, and mm-hmm. uh, obviously I'm you know I I have a, a love of kind of literature and literary fiction. Um, I don't read genre so much, but uh, and within um, you know I. I to me, the whole, t- especially, you know, given our history, uh, of the history of race relations in this country, obviously kind of talking about identity 
um, where it relates to kind of racial identity is and other forms of identity, obviously, as well. It's a very kind of touchy one, a uh, very mm-hmm. sensitive one. Uh, it's one that we haven't kind of worked out uh, as a society yet. There's still, there's a lot of unnecessary shame and hurt and suffering with people who can't you know, either identify honestly or feel mm. some compulsion for whatever reason to, you know, to take certain views on their identity that aren't right. entirely mm-hmm. kind of in, encompassing. And for that reason, I, you know, so Huey is very clearly uh, an anti-hero. You, you know, you talked about him being an unreliable narrative. And I think that was a really important aspect of the development of his character, given the theme, because I, th- I felt like we had to make we had to like there's a way that when you work through something to be completely uh, believable, um, to be completely honest, you have to go to hurtful places. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a kind of catharsis that that allows. And then we believe you because you've gone that particular path. <laughs> you've earned your credibility, so to speak. And uh, so in this way, I really like writers. And, and it strikes some people as a surprise. But I really like writers who who are transgressive, um, that write, go to places in their writing uh, that are very, that most people won't touch. And mm-hmm. so whether it's sexuality or drugs or other kind of kind of social taboo, I really love writers that have the courage to embrace those topics and do so honestly, because I think that for me, that's just, that's a big part of what, you know, why I read and I read for the, for the honesty of, you know, what's being given to me. And especially in these, in these areas where, you know, other people won't touch. So, so, um, you know, you take a writer like William Burroughs or you take a writer like, you know, Henry Miller, people who are writing, you know, books that were banned. Um, again, I just love that they're willing to go to places in their writing that is just so deeply honest and deeply personal. And um, uh, and most people wouldn't have, you know, or don't have the the courage to go to those places. So I like mm. that. Mm. I like that. I like that. Also, yeah. real quick, um, <laughs> I actually read the autobiography of an ex-colored man like years ago. Um, <laughs> and yeah, but also recommend super interesting, very, very interesting book. Mm. Um, but yes, well, Malcolm, thank you so much. This was everything. Like, yeah, we definitely appreciated the opportunity to talk to you and just to kind of, yeah, like hear more about, I mean, your extremely interesting life, but also just like, you know, sort of the, yeah, like the inspirational pieces behind the Come In All Colors. I guess, did you have any remaining thoughts um, that, you know, I guess weren't covered in any of the questions that we asked you that you wanted to leave our listeners with? No, I mean, you guys, you know, covered a, covered a lot of stuff. And I just wanted to say thank you to both of you for inviting me on your show and uh, giving me such great, thoughtful questions. I, I really appreciate it. Oh my God. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We really appreciate you being on here. So, ah. but yes, and I guess um, an, just one more quick, well, I guess we, two more quick questions. So, you know, we have a lot of listeners that are kind of like interested in getting more into writing and things like that. And so did you have any maybe like advice or like resources that you recommend to anyone that kind of wants to exercise that muscle, kind of get more into that creative space? Yeah. My, you know, uh, my only practical advice is to um and and some people disagree with this I actually take the exact opposite view but is not to throw anything away um mm. hold on to all your writing and i take the view that you know oftentimes we write things by accident we don't even realize what it is that we're the significance of what it is that we're writing and so and it doesn't it doesn't really kind of hit us until some later point um 
and even if it's a, and even if it's kind of a description of, or something and that we don't know why we kind of arrived at a particular description at a particular moment in our writing and it might not mm-hmm. be entirely useful to us then but please don't click on the delete button like take mm-hmm. that and and have a little kind of notepad or something where you you put that stuff aside and and it might not be useful to you in that moment but it might be useful to you in some later moment and can mm-hmm. really Mm. Uh, potentially help help jumpstart you then, and you'll be grateful that you've uh, held on to it. Mm. Mm, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yes, I love that. I love yeah. that. And and where can our listeners like you know find and follow up with you? So uh, you can go to my website malcolmhanson.com, and I have uh, a few essays up there, and I have um, you know you can get on a mailing list for me there, and. Uh, and find some other links um, that might be helpful. Um, and uh, yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, yes. Thank you so much again for an amazing interview. Um, and, you know, just for our usual spiel for our listeners, um, if you have any comments or questions about this interview, feel free to send us an email at thesecoloredpages at gmail.com. Um, That's how we also found Malcolm contacted us. Listen, yeah, so, I mean, Malcolm so... did it, so y'all could do it too. Right. So, like, <laughs> yeah, so hit us up on our email. Also, you know, we have a website at thesecoloredpages.com, which, you know, we're like getting it together. It's like mad cute. So, like, you know, check cute. that out. Um, we also, I, I don't think we ever mentioned this but we post all of our episodes on our website and so if you yes. want to kind of like see some more descriptions and like some like cute album art and stuff like that uh definitely check out our website for that and lastly we have a twitter at the colored pages where honestly at this point we just be saying just whatever like it's just girl <laughs> like it just whatever comes to the dome just is on twitter so uh, if you want to just i guess see the inner workings of our psyches <laughs> check that out as as well um and yeah just you know leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts um but yeah, yeah, aside from that, Akko, is there anything else we should leave our listeners with before we head out? No, nothing for now. But until we hear from you guys again, just remember to stay, stay colorful. colorful.